Welcome to Village Church of Gurney podcast. This week, we continue on in our series, Christ and His Disciples. The name of the sermon is called The Prodigal Manager, and Pastor David will be preaching from Luke 16, 1 through 18. Let's join Pastor David now. Well, we are continuing through our series in the Gospel of Luke. And today's parable is really, really bizarre (laughs) and really, really helpful. That's my introduction. And I'm going to pray for help because we need it and because I need it. Uh, So let me pray as we turn to God's Word today. Father, we, (laughs) we thank you for your mercies, your kindness, your grace, your word. Uh, We thank you, Lord, the mysterious ways that you work. So, Father, I pray that you would do that again. Move in our hearts. Would you find in us open hearts, open uh, ears, um, but, Lord, not just open uh, to what I'm going to say, but, Lord, to what you're going to say through your word. Would you move among us? By your spirit, help us to not leave this place untransformed, but change us by your spirit and your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. We're going to look at uh, verses uh, 1 to 18 today, but let me read verse 1, which brings us into this parable that Jesus gives to his disciples. Luke chapter 16, page 1040, if you're using the church Bible provided there for you. Luke 16, verse 1, uh, it says, Jesus, he, also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to the rich man, the boss, if you will, that this man, his manager, was wasting his possessions. So right out of the gates, we step right into the middle of a conflict, uh, a crime, if you will. And we're introduced very quickly to the two main characters of the story. We've got a rich man, uh, a boss, uh, an employer, and his manager. Now, at first glance, when we are introduced to this rich man, this employer, he seems like a pretty neutral character. But the more you look at the entire context of the Gospel of Luke and how uh, God's Word has been uh, convictingly, uh, hopefully, uh, soberingly speaking to the, the potential danger, the spiritual danger that riches can have on the heart of a person. Again, riches are not the problem. The love of riches, money is not the evil, the love of money is the root of all evil, and we are introduced to this rich man, and with the context of all that has taken place in the Gospel of Luke so far, we start to see who we are encountering. In Luke chapter 1 and 6, remember Jesus pronounced a series of woes, warnings, uh, a warning of lament to those who are rich. Uh, We saw also in Luke chapter 8, remember, in the parable of the seeds and the sower, that good things, the pleasures, the riches of this life have the risk of choking out spiritual fruitfulness for the sake of our journey of discipleship and for the sake of the kingdom. We saw in Luke chapter 12, covetousness so easily attaching itself to the riches of this life. 
We saw it just last week in the parable of, of the prodigal son, the older and younger brother. Remember how angry, how bitter the older brother was toward his dad for spending all of this money to throw a party for the younger brother who just wasted and squandered all the money in a far country. We also see in the Gospel of Luke chapters 12 and 14 that a part of what it is to be a disciple is to have, because Christ has taken the throne of our heart, the freedom to be generous, the freedom to give, that if Christ would ask us to renounce all that we had, which includes stuff, money, possessions, that one of the marks of biblical discipleship is that we are free to be generous. So Luke gives us all these warnings that can come along with riches of this life, and Luke calls his disciples to radical generosity, and now we read again that there was a rich man. And it, it's a slight um, suggestion that perhaps, perhaps, for this person, perhaps, it wasn't just that he had riches, but that riches had him. That there was something attached deeper so. It alludes to that. And this rich man has a manager... And charges were brought against the manager that this man was wasting his possessions. Look at verse 2 now. And the boss, the rich man, called the manager and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? What are you doing? You're squandering. You're wasting my resources. Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. He's getting fired. <laughs> the boss says, Yo, turn in the books. You're done. And we don't get a defense. The manager doesn't say, hey, hold on, these, these are false charges. It's true. It's true. And there's, there's an irony here. Uh, notice that it said in verse 1 that the man was wasting his possessions. Ironically so, I think uh, um, significantly so. That word translated wasting is the exact same word that is translated squandering from Luke chapter 15. Remember the younger brother squanders all of the riches in a far country? Same word here used again. This prodigal manager, if you will, is squandering, wasting the wealth of his employer. And we don't, we don't know how. We don't know exactly what the crime was per se, whether it was fraud or whether it was just um, um, licentious living. We don't know if he was just... Uh, spending all the money over and above. We don't know how he was getting um, fancy with the books, but in, uh, with a complete lack of integrity. We don't know how it exactly happened, but we do know that it happened in this parable that Jesus gives. He's squandering. He's wasting his boss's money. And then in verse 3, we start to see him hit rock bottom. Look at this. Verse 3. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, he's losing his job, he's losing his security, he's losing his work. I'm not strong enough to dig, this person says to themselves, and I'm too ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Pause there. So we're getting a glimpse into his heart. Again, Ironically so. Remember just in the last chapter, last week, remember the internal dialogue of the younger brother when he hits rock bottom? The younger prodigal son who's in a far country, he squandered all the money. He has now hired himself out to, to be a farmer of pigs. All the money's gone. He starts to eat the food that the pigs were eating. 
He's hitting rock bottom. Remember in that chapter, just the chapter before this one, the younger brother comes to himself. He says to himself, what am I doing? What's going on? I had a home. I had a father. I need to go home. There's humility. There's repentance. He turns his heart and his hands homeward to the father. And remember what the younger brother, he's rehearsing to himself, I'm going to say to my father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. That's the heart that we got in chapter 15 of someone who has hit rock bottom. That's not the heart that we're going to see in chapter 16 of someone else who's hit rock bottom. That this manager here, instead of, instead of humbling himself, Instead of turning in a repentant heart toward his employer, his boss, instead of reaching for mercy and grace in in confession, do you know what he does? (laughs) As he's there at rock bottom, he doesn't reach for mercy and grace. He reaches for a shovel and starts to dig himself (laughs) even deeper. Look at what he says. Look at what happens next. Verse 4, I've decided what to do. We see he's, again, verse 3, He's not strong enough to dig, so he says. He's ashamed to beg, so either his ability or his pride are are getting in the way of of him humbling himself. I decided what to do. The wheels are turning, so that people may receive me into their homes. So, verse 5, summoning his master's debtors one by one, which seems to suggest that there's a whole lineup. We're going to get a glimpse of two people, but it seems to suggest there's a whole line of all of these debtors, all of these people in a contract with this boss. And this is an agricultural society, so whether they're renting land or whether they're, they've got all these contracts uh, that have been written and signed, this manager, now catch this, this is on the way to him being fired. Remember, the boss said, hey, you're done. Hand in the books. So presumably, along the way... <laughs> The manager uh, sets up all these meetings, gets all the contracts, gets the books on the table, and now look at what he does. Look at what he does. Verse 5, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? This person responds, a hundred measures of oil, which would have been just shy of about 900 gallons. This a lot. (laughs) This is not a petty number. This is huge. 900 gallons gallons, just shy of that. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Okay. Um, Okay. So he discounts him by half, completely unbeknownst to his boss who's just fired him. Do you see what's happening? He cuts it all by half. He doctors the balance sheet. He changes the contract. Oh, so convenient for this person. Oh, so convenient for him. Watch, and it, it goes on. Look at, look at, and then he says to another, verse 7, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat, which could have been just shy of about 900 pounds of wheat. Again, this is a lot. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. And presumably so, down and down and down the line, he will go, doctoring the balances, changing the contracts, changing the budget. He's getting real sneaky in a completely wrong way with the books on his way to getting fired. Now, we're going to continue on, but do you realize that's where the parable ends? (laughs) What? (laughs) What do you mean that's where the parable ends? Do you see how it ends? Um, 
look at what's happening. So this manager just got brought into his boss's office and got fired because he, he, he didn't have integrity. He wasn't, he wasn't handling the books properly. And on the way to being fired, he sets up all these meetings where he doctors and changes all the books and all the contracts and all the balance sheets. But look at how sneaky this is. Everyone that's got a contract with this former uh, boss, they're going to be quiet. Why? Because they are very, very happy and very, very complicit. <laughs> they, they just had all their contracts cut in half. That's good for them, and they are completely wrapped up into this wrongdoing. So there's no way they're going to talk, because if they tell the boss, then they're busted too. They're super happy and super in trouble. The boss is super ignorant to what's going on, but he can't figure out why. Why is everyone so happy with me? All the people that I have contracts with love me. So he's not going to say anything. He doesn't know what happened. And why would he say anything? Everyone's happy. And the, and the manager walks out of the office, throwing his sports jacket over his shoulder in slow motion, putting his shades on his eyes and walking out. You know, have you seen all the films, all the movies? <laughs> And away he goes with a whole bunch of new friends and with a whole bunch of new job prospects on the horizon. His boss knows nothing. He's got a whole bunch of new relationships that he can, uh, that he can call upon for self-survival. And that's how the parable ends. <laughs> Does the boss ever find out? Does the manager's heart ever soften? I mean, he hit rock bottom, and then he just dug himself deeper. Is he going to get away free? Did any of the people that have made these fresh contracts, does any of them, do they break? Do they soften? Do they ultimately confess? We don't know. Do you remember um, all the plot lines of the Oceans movies? Remember the bank heist movies? Oceans 11, 12, 13, later on, Oceans 8. It's these, if you haven't seen them, the plot line, I'm going to give it away So for all the movies, so brace yourself. The, the plot line is essentially, everybody's a crook. Everybody's bad. There's, there's a casino owner who's making tons of money off these highly algorithmic games that people are completely addicted to, just pouring their money. So, so we, got a, we got a casino owner who is crooked. Then the main heroes of the story are thieves. <laughs> And the whole plot line is them uh, scheming and twisting and turning and using shrewdness and wit and wisdom and schemes to get the money, to, to kind of stick it to this, this uh, casino owner. And everyone who's at the casino, they're just completely blind and oblivious. They're almost not even characters of the film. They're just, they're just living it up, squandering all their money, wasting it. And at the end of these films, you see, you see these thieves, you know, proverbially so, throwing their sport jacket over their shoulder, throwing their shades over their eyes, the slow motion walk, the hero shot. And by the end of the film, you're, you're, you're so, this is all wrong, but hats off, you say. <laughs> you you want to applaud them. You sit, we, the, the person watching the film, we're entertained, we're amazed. We're like, wait a second. That was wrong. All of it was wrong. <laughs> that plot line is this parable. <laughs> this dishonest manager, this prodigal manager, if you will, hits rock bottom and schemes his way deeper. 
is, his integrity is completely shot. It's completely broken. He uses wisdom and scheming and wit to get what he wants. He's grasping for self-survival. And that's how the parable ends. Okay, now, are you ready for this? Buckle up. His prudence is commended. <laughs> now hold on to your hats. By Jesus. Oh my gosh, you're thinking... Our pastor is losing his mind. Look at this. Look at this. Don't shoot the messenger. Look at this. Verse 8. Verse 8. Luke chapter 16. It says, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealings with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, Make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. And you're thinking, what in the world is going on? <laughs> what do you mean this guy is commended? Now, a couple things real quick. Uh, um, this passage is admittedly bizarre and challenging and hard. Uh, I read in several commentaries going through this passage, much ink has been spilt to try to understand what in the world is going on. So this is not an easy passage. Uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, things that people have scratched their heads over the centuries thinking, what in the world is Jesus saying? Some have even said, is, is Jesus really the one that commended him? And I actually think, yes, much could be said on that, but I just want to say two things. Number one, look again at verse 8. Notice what it says. First two words, verse 8. The master, the master, not as it was in verses 3 and 5, my master or his master. So presumably there's a shift of character, if you will, that in verse 3 and 5, the dishonest manager is talking about his master. And that word master uh, could be translated in a whole bunch of different ways, whether that's uh, master, owner, sir, boss, if you will, would be a, a modern-day equivalent, or that could also be translated as in lord, either as... Uh, uh, an earthly Lord, or like the Lord, our Lord, Lord, the Lord. <laughs> so what is it talking about? Who is it referring to? And this shift from my master to the master, not just any master, the master seems to suggest that it is Jesus, in fact, who's speaking. And moreover, it makes more sense for that second sentence in verse 8 to come from the lips of Jesus than it does to come from the lips of the rich man. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What is going on? Now, definitely, and this would be true, even if someone said, you know what, I actually don't think it was Jesus who was saying this, it still hangs true, it still holds true that what, what is being commended? Now, there's absolutely shock going on here, there's irony going on here, but notice what's being commended. Not his character. <laughs> not his character. His character is completely shot through and through. What's being commended is shrewdness in and of itself. So think of yourself as a, as a surgeon lifting just one attribute, shrewdness, wisdom, wit, skill, prudence. That is being lifted from this parable, and that itself is being commended. It's, it's when, you're, when you're sitting back as the credits are rolling on the Oceans movies, you, that's completely wrong. No one should ever be a thief, but my goodness, did you see the wit, <laughs> the shrewdness, the skill? 
the wisdom. Now, I think what Jesus is getting at is in a shocking way, this is a startling way to communicate this truth, this reality, but I think what Jesus is getting at is if, 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 if prudence and wisdom and wit is used like a tool, it's a tool, it could be used in the hand of a hero, it could be used in the hand of a villain. If shrewdness and wisdom and wit is used as a tool to, to grasp at self-survival in this life, and for this world, how much more important is it to utilize shrewdness, wisdom, wit, with good character, to use it skillfully for the sake of investing in and pouring into God's kingdom? If we are blown away at just how crafty and wise and prudent the dishonest manager, how much more important is it to use wisdom and prudence to pour into good things, to pour into God's kingdom, to build not for our earthly security, but to build into and to invest into eternal matters that are going to last forever. How much more important is that? And by comparison, Jesus teaches and communicates his point. It makes more sense as we go on. Uh, look at verses 10 and following. Jesus says, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. In one, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is in others, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, you cannot serve God and money. The throne on your heart has one seat in it, and Jesus is saying something will sit on that throne. And if you're trying to serve God and money, it's impossible Neither Lord of your life is going to share that seat. Jesus will not share it with money. Money will not share with Jesus. And what Jesus is getting at in this bizarre parable, this prodigal manager, if you will, he, he, he's getting at the heart of shrewd, wise, honest, honest, <laughs> integrous, prudent stewardship. He's getting that stewardship. He's getting at how we steward our stuff, our resources. Certainly, stewardship in the broadest sense. He's getting at how we steward our time, how, are we, how we steward our, our skills, the gifts that God has given you, the gifts that you've been cultivating over years or decades. And certainly, he's also talking about our money, how we steward our money. But it's, it's, it's much deeper than mere behavior modification. This passage is not, you know, <laughs> seven helpful hits to balancing your boss's budget kind of a passage. It's, it's not going to hold water there. <laughs> it's a little bizarre. Jesus is going much deeper. Now, one of the results is that our lives are transformed, but Jesus is reaching, do you see, he's reaching much deeper than just mere behavior management. 
He's reaching through his word in this parable, and he's even reaching through the stewardship of our resources. He's reaching through our bank. (laughs) He's reaching through your accounts. Where? Into your heart. He wants your heart. He wants to go all the way in that this parable, this passage, in a way, surgically enters our heart to do a work in us and a work specifically as it pertains to what it means to be a follower of Christ and steward our stuff, steward our money, steward our resources. And Christ's teaching both reveals our heart and heals our heart. Both and. It's very revealing. It's very convicting, Jesus' teaching. And the same teaching, the same gospel, as God enters and takes reign over our hearts, also heals us from the inside out. Look where this passage goes next. Verse 14 to 18. It says that the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, ah, there it is again, remember? Money per se is not the enemy here. It's the love of money which, by the way, can, 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 is a risk no matter how much we have. You can be a lover of money and in an earthly sense have very, very little. You can be a lover of money and in an earthly sense have a lot and vice versa. You can be a good steward of your resources, whether that pile is very small. You can be a good steward of your resources, whether that pile is very big. Jesus is reaching past that. He's not saying, per se, that there's inherent evil with a bigger pile or inherent virtue with a smaller pile. No, no, no. Jesus is reaching much deeper. He's reaching to the heart. And we see in this teaching that the Pharisees are mad. Why? (laughs) Why are they so mad? Because they hear what Jesus is saying, and they, and they themselves, they were lovers of money. Money sat on the throne of their heart, not Christ. So they heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. They're mad at him. They're bitter at him. They're, they're tearing him down. They're tearing down his teaching. They're tearing down who he is. And he said to them, verse 15, and you are those who justify yourself before men. But God knows your heart. God sees what's on the inside. On the outside, it looked very much so. The Pharisees and other passages, we, we, tithe, we tithe everything. We tithe our dill. We tithe our cumin. We tithe 10% of everything that we do. But underneath it, it's coming from a heart of trying to earn God's approval through that giving. Christ still isn't on their hearts. They're lovers of money. Jesus says, You're trying to justify yourself before men. God knows your heart, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Verse 18, the final verse of this passage, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And you're thinking, oh, man, the text just took another left turn. What is this now? (laughs) I thought we were talking about stewardship. Verse 18 kind of just feels like, you know, where did this come from? How are we talking about marriage now? What is going on? This passage is a little bit bizarre. So what's going on? 
I, I, so verse 18, in a way, that's, it, it's a teaching that does stand on its own two feet, but I think Jesus is using, it's not random, it's not, this is bizarre, how is this here all of a sudden? I think Jesus is using it to say something pretty profound about the authority of his teaching. Now, when Jesus says in verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. What Jesus is saying is in the Old Testament was, was the law and the prophets and the Psalms. The entirety of the whole, test, whole Old Testament is pointing toward its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ and the teaching of Jesus Christ. That's why John, in a way, the final prophet, the last in that lineage who hands off the baton to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. It all pointed to him. He fulfills it. And that doesn't mean that the Old Testament is void. It doesn't mean that Old Testament as in outdated Testament or Old Testament as in, well, now we have the new thing. We don't need the old thing anymore. No, 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 no. Jesus is the fulfillment of it, which puts his teaching now, the person of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, on the same level and on the same par as the very authoritative word of God himself. All of Christ's teaching, all of who Christ is, his word is God's word. His teaching is God's teaching. And that's why this emphasis here in verse 17, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And if that is true of God's Old Testament word and law and the prophets, and if Jesus is now speaking with the very authority of God himself, do you see what that means about the authority of Jesus' teaching? It's God's teaching. And if you've been around uh, church circles for a while, that's one of those truths that we might become so familiar with that we lose the statement of that, the shock of that. Jesus is not just coming along as another trend along history. No, no, no. He's God himself. And what he says here in his word has incredible authority and an incredible ability to reveal our heart. That's why he reaches to the heart so quickly. He sees the heart. He knows the heart. He's Lord of the heart. He's designed it. He's designed us. He's designed you and me. And his teaching reveals the heart of the Pharisees in their love of money. And it begs the question for us, does it not? To what degree... To what degree or to what extent is the love of money competing for the throne of my heart? That if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, there's a competition there, isn't there? That when we think about stewardship of our stuff, when Jesus is teaching in the Gospel of Luke, says, be generous, be radically generous. Renounce all that you have. Be willing to give it away. Be willing to partner with it for the sake of the gospel. Be willing to give it away for other people. You know what happens in my heart at that moment? Do I have to? <laughs> Do I have to? What's that thought? It's a battle. It's a spiritual war going on in the, on the throne of my very heart. Am I going to serve God? Am I going to submit to him? Am I going to see him as Lord of my life? Or am I going to serve money? my pile. Because we can, we can, we can look to money 
and to reach after all of the things that only God can supply, only God can provide. Have you noticed how quickly we look to money to be our security? Any fellow savers in the house? Don't raise your hands. You know, I won't, you know. Any fellow savers in the house? So do you see how quickly we can look to money for our security, for the savers among us? <laughs> we just, you just, we, you, well, it might be me, might not be me. You just, you just want to create a pile and then just look at it. <laughs> because it makes you feel safe, right? Just don't touch it. You kind of want nothing to touch it. You know, and if I eat half of the green bean this meal and you eat the other half the next meal, then we don't have to touch our pile, you know? <laughs> now, obviously, I'm not saying that there's... There's some wisdom. I got you, fellow savers. There's some wisdom in this. There's some wisdom here. But do you see? Jesus is not just reaching at behavior. He's not just reaching at budgeting tactics. He's reaching at your heart. If we start to look at money for our security, our soul security, our life security, the deep security that says, you know what? Everything's going to be okay because I know that I have that account somewhere. Do you know what's happening in that moment? Worship is happening in that moment. Trust is happening in that moment. You're looking to the functional God of your life in that moment. Why look to money for the very security that God himself offers? The very God who gave of himself, the very God who's come for you, the God who is a heavenly father who provides for his children. Why look to any other source? for our security when we have a heavenly father who cares for us, who provides for us. Don't look elsewhere, God is saying. Look to me. We can look to money for our security. We can look to money for our dignity, our identity. We, we, can, we can look to money and stuff or zip codes or brands or, or, or the kind of things that we own, the toys that we own, the pile of toys that we own, and we can look to that, right? We're looking through that because deep down we want to know I'm valued, I'm important, I have dignity, I have worth. Have you struggled with that ever? Ever felt a little bit of insecurity when the nicer car pulls up <laughs> beside yours? And you kind of think, oh man, Am I less than? Ever struggled with, with um, dreaming about zip codes that you do or don't live in? Has that ever been a temptation for you? Do you know what's happening in that moment? A battle, a spiritual war is happening. Worship is happening. Why? Because we're looking to money for our identity, our value, our worth. The measure of your worth is not in the size of your pile. The depth of your dignity is not attached to the brands that you do or don't have, the zip code that you are or aren't in, the stuff that you, that you have or don't have access to. Do you see why, 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 why look to money for the very value and dignity when we have Christ who's bought us with a price? Christ himself who saw you so valuable that he would give the riches of glory for you. Did you know that you're a son and daughter of the king? Do you know that in Christ, God looks at you as if he looks at Christ himself? That's value. That's dignity. 
Every other source of dignity and value that we reach to, do you see, it pales in comparison when we have Christ. Do you see that? Let him sit on the throne of your heart. Let him be comfortable on the throne of your heart. Why do we look to money for security? Why do we look to money for value and dignity? Why do we look to money for, for all of our hopes and dreams? You've got goals for your life. You've got goals for your family, yourself, your spouse, your children, your grandkids. And that's not wrong. That's not wrong. But do you see how quickly, do you see how quickly we can attach that to, but my goodness, if, how am I going to achieve these goals? How, how is my life going to be guided in the steps that it needs to be guided in if I don't have, not just money, more money than what I have now? Do you see how tempting that is? Do you see how sneaky that is? Because again, money's not the problem. Money's a tool. Wisdom and prudence and shrewdness is a tool. Absolutely. Use the skill and the mind that God has given you to help care for your family. Absolutely. But do you see, Christ is reaching past behavior. He's reaching to your heart. Why? Jesus is asking in a way. Why do we continue to look to money, to stuff, to fulfill all of our hopes, all of our dreams, to accomplish all the goals that we have in our life when we have the sovereign God of the universe who guides our steps, the sovereign God of the universe who dries up the Jordan and his people pass through, the God of the universe who drops manna from heaven, the God of the universe that raises the dead to life, if he, a God of that kind of power and of that kind of grace and goodness, if he is guiding your life, why look to any other God to guide your steps, to make straight your paths, to open doors, and to guide the steps of your children and grandchildren? We have all that we need in Christ. Do you, see, do you see how revealing this is? Do you see how painfully sanctifying this is? Christ's teaching reveals our hearts. It reveals to what extent money, stuff, has a grip on our hearts. It reveals who the functional Lord of my life truly is. It reveals it, but it doesn't leave us in that pain. Christ also heals us there too. He heals our hearts. He restores and rebuilds us. Because what is Christ calling us to? Both in this passage and in other passage, passages, as he calls us to biblical stewardship, stewardship as disciples of Christ. And a part of what that means is radical generosity. Why? Because finally we're free to be generous. If money is Lord of your life, if money is God of your heart, it is not going to want you to give it away. Gods are jealous gods. They don't like to be given away. And as we give money away, do you see what's happening? We're not only, we're not merely partnering with God for the sake of his kingdom. We're not merely partnering with each other for the sake of the gospel. Do you know what we're also doing? Spiritual discipline, formative practices, it's healing for us. Every week here at Village, uh, uh, and those of you who've been around Village circles for many years, you, it might even become so familiar that, that you forget about it. But did you know every week here at Village, when we provide the opportunity to give, to be generous, to partner with us, to invest in God's kingdom, what's happening there? Absolutely, we're saying, 
let's lock arms. Let's invest our resources into eternal matters. Let's see more lives transformed and to use our prudence and wisdom and shrewdness in good ways, as opposed to the dishonest manager, to invest in eternal matters for the sake of God's kingdom. We're doing that at least, but also, also, we're doing the heart work of spiritual disciplines because in that moment, when we give, whether it's online, whether, whether you physically have an envelope, do you know what you're doing in that moment? You're saying, Christ is Lord of my life. Oh, check. <laughs> and you are not. And I'm going to give you away. And when we do that, when we do that, something is healed. Something is affirmed. He is Lord. My bank account is not. He's my security. Money is not. He's my provider. He guides my steps. He makes my path straight. I have value and dignity in him. And if that's true, I can freely give to the purposes of God. One of the fastest ways that you can both reveal your heart and engage in this spiritual discipline is to sit down and to make a budget. <laughs> oh, so painful and so freeing, is it not? Okay, sit down. However you manage your money, however you go about doing that work, the budgeting process, whatever that looks like for you, sit down pray, <laughs> and then start with generosity. And you're thinking, oh man, come on, pastor. Start with generosity. Start with generosity. You know what's going to happen? You start sliding that number to the left and to the right, and you know all the other costs. You know everything else that you got to take care of. I know that you got to pay your rent or your mortgage. I know that there's other needs, good needs. I'm not saying not to take care of those. Take care of those. But when you start with generosity and you slide that number to the left and to the right just to figure out, okay, Lord, where are you calling me to land? How are you calling me to give? What's going to happen is all the idols of your heart are going to come screaming at you. The savers, the bank account's going to, the, the, the savings account's going to scream at you. Don't you take away from me. <laughs> I'm your security. I'm your hope. I'm your safety blanket. How dare you? How dare you take from this bucket? All, all, all the spenders, you know, this is, how we, this is how we fulfill our dreams. This is how we fulfill our goals. Those categories are going to scream at you. Don't you dare take away from my vacation. Don't you dare take away from this goal that we're trying to achieve. Do you see what's happening? Spiritual formation is happening one of the things that my beloved wife and I do when we sit down and we look at our finances is we pray. We pray. Because it's not just behavior management. It's not just where the money goes. It's our hearts, is it not? And I want to encourage you. God is, in a way, I've heard someone else put it this way. He's less, he's less interested about getting money out of your account as he is getting idols out of your heart. And I, I think that's true. I think that's true. How much is God asking us to give? That's between you and him. And I would encourage you, if that's, if that's the question that you're asking, sit down. If you're single, sit down and look at your, your resources. If you're married, if you have a family, sit down with your spouse. Look at your resources. Pray, pray. And then say, God, if you are Lord of my life, would you help us with wisdom and prudence and shrewdness? Help invest our resources into stuff that's going to matter forever. And when you do that, you're not just partnering. You're not just partnering for the sake of the gospel. And that at least is good. 
but you're also letting the Holy Spirit reach through your budget, through your account, into your heart to transform you, to comfort you, to remind you, to, to walk with you in bold steps of faith, sacrificial giving. Why? Because he is a heavenly father who will provide. He is a gracious Lord who will guide our steps. He has a plan and a will for your life that he will see come to fruition. And what Jesus, I think, in this bizarre passage, <laughs> this confusing passage, it's perplexing, it's shocking, it's, it, it takes a whole bunch of left and right turns. I think what Jesus in this passage is telling you and is telling me is exactly this, that Christ transforms our stewardship. He transforms our stewardship from frantic survival to sanctifying partnership. That's how the Lord brings the heart. Do you see, when the gospel takes root all the way into our hearts, it touches every aspect of our life, even our stewardship. And Christ, the presence of Christ in the heart of a disciple, transforms our stewardship from frantic survival, scheming. We're not out here to, we're not saving ourselves. We have a heavenly Father who provides, who guides our steps. He transforms our heart from that and, and moves us to a place of partnership, sanctifying partnership for the sake of God and his kingdom, for the sake of people and their benefit, for, for the sake of others. Money is not for me. It's a tool. And it's to be used by us for others. And when we go about that work, my friends, we are sanctified. We are heart work happens. And as you are walking down this path, you're going to realize you will not be able to freely give. Your heart won't let you do it. You won't be able to freely give until you see just how freely God has given first to you. You won't be able to give generously until you see, until your heart's melted by just how generous God himself and all of his riches has been for you. You won't be able to give sacrificially until you see the depth of his sacrifice for you. And once you see that, once that grabs a hold of your heart, giving doesn't become a painful chore, a burden. It becomes an opportunity, an opportunity to see God's purposes advance and an opportunity for us, for me, to grow. See how deep this reaches. See how healing this can be. And I would encourage you as you lean into it, you will see just how good a provider and a heavenly father he truly is to us. Let's pray. Father, I, th I thank you for this, this passage. <laughs> Lord, one in which if we were not going start to finish through books of the Bible, we'd be very tempted to skip. It's too confusing. It's too convicting. Yet, Lord, you've given it to us because we need it. Thank you for that, Lord. And Father, I pray, I pray for, for people. I pray for families here. And Father, I recognize, we recognize that these are hard times financially. And there's a whole bunch of different factors that makes giving very difficult. Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would provide wisdom, clarity, comfort, provide assurance, surprise us over and over and over again by the ways in which you provide and Lord, as we partner, would you multiply 
multiply our meager efforts to carry on the sake of the gospel through us for your glory, for the good of people, and even, yes, Lord, for our own growth and sanctification. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney or go to www.bcgurney.org. 